From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Maria Rote is officially the Deputy Chief Information Officer of the United States. She'll join the Office of Management and Budget from the Small Business Administration. She's been Chief Information Officer there since 2016. She's also served as the Chief Technology Officer of Transportation and the head of the FedRAMP program at the General Services Administration. The Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board will delay a change in the Thrift Savings Plan's international fund. Three new board members President Trump nominated last week favor canceling a change previous board members voted for that would move the I-Fund to a product that invests more heavily in China. No timeline yet from the TSP board on how long it might delay the move. The Department of Homeland Security has its first confirmed chief financial officer since the beginning of the Trump administration. The Senate confirmed Troy Edgar, 62 to 31 Tuesday. Federal News Network reports Edgar's been associate deputy undersecretary of management at DHS since January. He's former CFO at Boeing and a veteran of Price Waterhouse. The United States Navy has patrols making regular trips to the Arctic Circle for the first time since the Cold War. Four ships are in the Barents Sea to keep an eye on Russian submarine operations. Captain Jerry Hendricks, U.S. Navy retired, vice president of the Telemus Group. Jerry, it's good to see you again. What's the story behind why it's been so long since the Navy's been up there? You write National Review, 2010 since they've been there at all, and many years longer than that since the Navy's had a regular presence there. Yeah, that's correct. So the, the challenge here is, of course, access to the size of the fleet that we need. We really haven't had a large fleet, and we don't have the type of ships that operate naturally in the Arctic waters. Right now, the Barents Sea is actually ice-free, so the ability to send these uh, BERT-class destroyers up there, as well as an escort ship, really isn't a safety issue. The last time we sent a ship up there was in 2010, and that was an Oliver Hazard Perry-class frigate, again, during an ice-free period of time. But the Barents Sea is really not the challenging area of the Arctic for the United States vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia. It's actually the, the going farther east uh, beyond uh, the Yamal Peninsula, for instance, in, in the more isolated areas, which is where Russia is making some excessive territorial claims. But the issue, coming back to this really quickly, is that is it's the capability of the ships to operate in ice-laden seas. There's two issues at play here as I read your piece. One of them is, this strikes me, this is a quintessential demonstration of the execution of the national defense strategy. That's one element of this. The other element of this is a lot of the focus on the NDS since its release has been on China, not as much on Russia. And this is, although China's interested in the Arctic Circle, the, the primary element of interest there vis-a-vis -vis our potential adversaries is Russia. Is that a fair read? Yeah, that's correct. So we talk within the national defense strategy about the two peer competitors or the great powers. We talk a lot about China, and that is very clear that we're competing with them. But we don't talk as much about Russia. And what I found interesting in doing research for this piece was that we've been conducting over 400 freedom of navigation operations since the end of the Cold War not one against Russia in the Arctic area. We've done others against 60 other nations, a lot against China, but not as many against Russia. And yet they are the ones who are making some of the most aggressive territorial claims in the Arctic Ocean, and those need to be countered now. 
You've spoken to me uh, and to others on many occasions about the freedom of navigation operations in the South China Sea, around the Spratleys and, and other parts of the South China Sea. Is the same kind of thing, in your view, necessary in the Arctic Circle because of the aggression of the Russian claims? Yes. So the basic tenet at risk here is the, 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 the idea of the free sea which is a bedrock foundational idea that goes back to Hugo Grotius in 1609. It's a part of the enlightenment that we in the West are seeking to uphold. And Russia right now is seeking to essentially claim at least half of the Arctic Ocean, which is its surface as well as the resources underneath it to include oil, natural gas, and any minerals. And this is a basic tenet of the West is that if you want to free sea everywhere, then you have to push back when you have these nations do these excessive claims. And right now, Russia is arming up its icebreakers in order to try and effect a territorial sea grab over the Arctic Ocean. That is something that we in the West simply cannot allow to happen. All right. I want to talk about the arming up of the icebreakers in a moment, but numbers first. You write in this piece in National Review, with 40 icebreakers, Russia tops all Arctic powers, and uh, uh, President Putin plans to refresh Russia's northern fleet with nine new nuclear-powered icebreakers by 2035. I know of one in the Coast Guard. What else do we have to put up there, Jerry? We have one heavy icebreaker, uh, the Polar Star. Uh, we have a second heavy icebreaker, but we're really cannibalizing that for spare parts to keep the Polar Star operating. And then we have one medium icebreaker, which quite frankly cannot operate in those ice-laden seas. In 2018, the Coast Guard considered sending the Polar Star up there to do a freedom of navigation operation, but they made the decision not to because they were concerned that she would break down and that we might actually call upon the Russians to come rescue, uh, rescue her. So we are in the process of building three new heavy icebreakers. We've led a contract to do that. But until we get those ships to sea, we're not going to be able to push back on these claims. And we also, in the Navy, don't have any ships that are rated uh, as ice-hardened in order to, you know, to operate surface ships in the Arctic area. You mentioned the FONOPS that uh, the White House asked the Coast Guard to undertake in 2018. We didn't learn about that until last summer or fall, I believe. Admiral Zukov, who was the uh, commandant of the Coast Guard who that request went to, was on this program not long after he talked about that in public for the first time. I'm completely baffled, Jerry, as to why that didn't become a bigger story than it did. If the same thing would have happened in the South China Sea and we were talking to uh, about the chief of naval operations, I think people's heads would have exploded, Jerry. Oh, I, I agree. And it's one of these big questions as to, you know, whether we can uh, walk and chew gum at the same time. Uh, we have two rising great powers. We have China, we have Russia. We become very focused on China, and I think that's appropriate. We need to have a greater emphasis on our security situation in the Western Pacific, but we also have to be able to look north at the Russians. We have a lot of resources that are at risk up there north of Alaska. Also, we have allies, uh, Canada, Denmark, and Norway, that also have resources at risk as well, and we need to be prepared to work together in order to defend those assets, those interests, those resources. And thus far, we haven't. In 2019, the Secretary of the Navy said that he wanted to do a FONOPS up in this area, this north of, of Russia. That never occurred. And I don't think it occurred because we don't have the ships that are capable of operating there. Jerry Hendricks, thanks very much for your insight. Great to have you as always, my friend. Good to be here. Thank you, Francis.
Up next, prioritizing customer experience during the pandemic. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the top challenges and solutions for CX. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. Call centers in government are busier than ever now as people navigate stimulus payments, small business loans, and tax season. To take a look at how the government's prioritizing customer experience during all of these issues going on, Kathy Conrad, Director of Digital Government for Accenture Federal Services and a veteran of CX at the General Services Administration. Kathy, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to see you. The call center issue is fascinating to me because we focus so much now, I think, on the digital experience that we forget a lot of people still contact the government over the phone, don't they? Yeah, they sure do. And, you know, I think one of the things that's really impressive is how quickly the government has pivoted to be able to move to digital and online services and be able to man the phones and use virtual agents and chatbots to make sure that people can continue to receive the services and benefits they need during this difficult time. We, what are we learning about the differences between the, the way that people take information over the phone and the way that they take information through digital sources. Is there a difference or are they seeking the same stuff, want to know the same stuff? Well, what's really important is to understand what they do want to know. And so agencies are using multi-channel approaches to really understand what people need to know and how they and where they need to receive that information. So instead of just using call centers and uh, websites, as I said, they're using chatbots uh, like the Department of Education's Aiden, and they're using social media to amplify their messaging. Um, the Undersecretary of Benefits, uh, Paul Lawrence, is using teletown halls and these great 10-minute uh, video whiteboard sessions to make sure that uh, he and that VA understands what veterans need to know and that they have the information and services they need. One of the things that I think is interesting about those whiteboard sessions is the 10-minute piece of it. Uh, I, I think there's a tendency to think, especially in CX, we have all this information, we have all this data, and we should convey it all to everybody. And by cutting these pieces, by cutting this information into chunks and providing it in a 10-minute window, it strikes me it's probably a lot easier for his people to, to digest. Is that a fair observation, you think, Kathy? I think it also allows prioritization. I mean, what's really important is to listen to people and understand what their highest priority needs are. So for example, um, one of the shifts that's been made really quickly is uh, IRS and USDA have started accepting digital signatures because that's so critical to be able to continue to do business with the government. What do you think is different about the way that the government provides the customer service, the, the experience for the citizen that they're interacting with in a time like now compared to before? Well, so obviously agencies have had to shift really quickly to providing services online that previously were in person. Um, the, a good example is the VA was doing, I think, 3,000 visits a day, telemedicine visits a day, in January and has massively scaled to do 25,000 telemedicine visits a day in April. So it requires really quickly shifting, not only so that people are working remotely, but so that services can be delivered online and uh, over the phone. 
We're starting to see agencies thinking and talking about what coming back to the office will look like. What's your sense of the lessons, the best practices that should be learned now, that agencies should be learning and documenting now in order to continue that, whatever the post-corona reality looks like, if it's half people in the office and half people teleworking or staying in a, a similar state of telework than today, what difference will that make in the way that business operations happen in your view regarding customer experience, Kathy? Well, so for one thing, I, you know, I think there are going to be large, large percentages of people who've now found the convenience of interacting with government from their homes online. I don't think they're going to go back to deciding they want to drive and, and meet people in person. So I think there's the need to scale and sustain some of the things that have been put in place, increase use of things like chatbots and conversational AI. And also, and this is really critical, recognize and find out where are the real gaps in back-end infrastructure that are needed to provide the kind of seamless, remote digital services that people have come to expect. In many cases, that won't be difficult, Kathy. In some cases, it will be tremendously difficult. I remember one of the first agencies to say we're closing our in-person locations with Social Security. And they deal obviously not just with social security numbers but lots of other kinds of PII that can be difficult from the government end to provide through remote service but I think you're exactly right the customer the citizen doesn't think about that stuff and doesn't care about that stuff they just care that they can get the service the way they want that service so what will agencies like social security and the internal revenue service and others that handle massive amounts of PII have to do in order to continue to provide these services online or to scale the kinds of services they're providing maybe things they're not even doing now you know I think one of the long-standing hurdles uh, to providing services and online has been authentication mm -hmm. making sure that are who you say you are. So I think that's probably uh, one of those foundational hurdles that agencies are going to need to tackle with even more seriousness in order to be able to continue to provide services online. You got about 30 seconds left. What does that look like in your view? What, what exists now or what could exist soon for identity management that would, that would make that work? So for one thing, I think it's important that agencies collaborate because you don't want every agency to have its own, you don't want citizens to have to have a separate and unique way of uh, authenticating with every single agency. So the kind of uh, collaboration that we're seeing right now between like Treasury, IRS, Social Security, and VA on making sure that anybody who's eligible can get a stimulus check need to be applied to some of these other uh, issues that while not necessarily as urgent as some COVID-specific needs, have really significant long-term implica implications to meet citizens' expe expectations. Kathy Conrad, thanks as always. Great to see you. Great to see you, Francis. Stay well. Up next, revitalizing Navy ships to keep them in the water longer. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how the Navy's saving money on its latest overhauls. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. The Navy saved tens of millions of dollars and 160,000 hours on updates to aircraft carriers. The efforts could carry over to other programs in the Navy and beyond. 
Mark Braza is Assistant Program Manager at the Program Management Office for In-Service Aircraft Carriers in the Navy. He's a finalist for a Service to America medal in the Emerging Leaders category. Mark, thanks very much for coming on. What was the, pro the problem that you wanted to attack with aircraft carrier maintenance? Oh, just some real quick background. There's 11 commissioned aircraft carriers and the, each aircraft carrier has a life of about 50 years. Halfway through that life, we do a midlife overhaul, which is a effort that for the overhaul that I'm working on, USS John C. Stennis, CVN 74, is a $5 billion program. It takes four years to plan this effort and four years to accomplish it. So we were very focused on finding ways to save costs and deliver the ship on time with the latest technologies, including making ready the ship for MQ-25 Stingray unmanned aircraft and Joint Strike Fighter F-35 aircraft and outfitting with the latest and greatest radars and electronic warfare and defense systems, while also taking this time to refuel the two power plants that are on board the ship. When you build, a, uh, or when you refresh a carrier like this with this kind of technology, and it's supposed to last for another 25 years, how did you go about thinking about strategizing and building in on-ramps for technology that the ship will need to accommodate, but we don't even know what that technology looks like? When this ship was built 25 years ago, nobody had an idea about an F-35, for example. Uh, that is a great question, and something the team takes an enormous amount of effort to coordinate and to plan for. We work across Navy stakeholders and industry stakeholders to look at what technologies are coming down the pipeline, getting all of the information ready to support that, and all the funding lined up and contractor activities lined up to implement that successfully. It is not an easy task. One of the items, one of the things in the summary that the Partnership Public Service put up about your, your selection as a finalist is that this, the work is being very heavily driven by data and the data is primarily focused around the idea of contractor performance. What kind of data are you looking at? How are you collecting it? And what are you learning from that data, not just about the refresh effort, but about the, the broader way that, that the Navy goes about doing the, this work? We collect a tremendous amount of data from all different contracting activities that go on for these midlife overhauls. There have been several that have been performed before, so we have some very good historical data that we're able to mine and become smart on and use that information to integrate into our strategies and implementation of those strategies. Uh, we have taken that information and found ways to diversify our maintenance provider pool, and we've used it to help find ways to expand the use of small business and drive out any unnecessary non-value-added cost elements that we know aren't necessary for the end product. As you created this construct, Mark, for structuring this contract, was there also a process here of trying to build a framework so that you could replicate this, not just for other carriers, but for other ships across the Navy and maybe even for the other sea services? There are some opportunities like that. 
we are always looking to use lessons learned from past ships from other program offices and implement those for our midlife overhauls on aircraft carriers. And we are involved in many working groups that are focused on other ship overhauls and construction to share those lessons learned and build on the successes that we've had so that other programs may be able to integrate those successes in their programs. Lots of cross-the-board collaboration amongst the Navy, and one of the reasons it's such a, a fun place to work, great coordination amongst us all. Mark, just a little bit more than a minute left. You described this earlier as an eight-year process, four years to prepare, four years to execute. At the end of that eight years, how will you look back on this? What data will you look at to determine if your effort was successful? Is it just um, man hours saved and dollars saved, or are there other metrics that you'll use to determine that your effort was a success? Those are certainly some key metrics that we'll look at. Uh, there's more than that though there's also areas like small business use and being able to have a healthy industrial base we look across benchmarks and see are we making progress in some of those areas and we can't forget the human aspect of this as well once these carriers are delivered they're going to be home for 5000 ish sailors that are going to call this ship home for another 25 years we've got to look at making the ship more comfortable, more usable, and more functional for those men and women that are out serving our country and supporting our nation's needs. Mark, congratulations on your selection as a Sammy's finalist. Thanks for coming on to talk about your story. Thank you very much for having me. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available now as an audio podcast. You get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.